Stuart and I have been sharing in the book of Genesis, and we'll get there in just a moment. One of the beautiful things about um, Bible study classes is we have the opportunity to minister each other in ways that um, worship service just does not avail itself to. Uh, Maureen has been involved with making the meals in here for a number of years, and uh, Diane Burcham in the 8 o'clock class, and and Diane expressed some frustration to me uh, last month about, you know, there's so many needs, and sometimes there's just not enough people to step up to the plate. And I said, I know Diane, and my wife does it in the second class, and uh, and sometimes I see and sense the frustration. I I can only appeal to you and say, folk... um, when you're involved in a pastor's class, and that's kind of what Stuart and I have, is, is sort of similar to a pastor's class. It's a bigger class than most classes. It just is. And, uh, and, and we love teaching, and we're grateful for your presence. But it does necessitate um, some getting out of the box a little bit and realizing we still are in the business of giving a look, a word, and a touch. And in order to do that, some people have to go the second mile and help uh, in order to uh, to be mindful that people in our class experience death, people in our class are in the hospitals, and a, a meal goes a long ways in just affirming them. And so Maureen is here with her meal ministry sign-up. Isn't that what that is, Maureen? You might, you might, you might want to uh, say a word about this and give the class an opportunity to be a blessing to others. Thank you. I won't take too long. We have our meal ministry sign-up. Basically what you do is you sign up to say, I will commit to this week to be available to make a meal, buy a meal. I can do a meal in two notes or less. When you do it so much, you actually can do it really easily, so don't let it overwhelm you. If, even if you work full-time, you can still do this. Um, and what it is is if someone's, in, if someone's in the hospital, if someone has a death, if someone's um, going through treatments, uh, we have Allison Ehrlich in our class, and many of you do not even know Allison, but she doesn't even come because she's going through treatments. So it's things like that that we like to try and send just a little touch. It's amazing how far that goes. Uh, you sign up. We send you an email. Say, hey, this is your week. Be ready. Now, you may not get a notice that says we need your meal. Don't panic. It's okay. You were ready when we, you said you would be ready. If you want to be ready anytime, a lot of times we have more needs than we have people that sign up, put an asterisk by your name. That asterisk will tell us, hey, call me if you get in a pinch. So this is our meal list. If it goes around, put it on the back snack table when, you're, when we're finished passing it. Gail White, Gail, stand up and let them see who you are. Gail is really in charge of this now. Thank you, Gail, so much because she does a lot of things that I used to do. Um, But anyway, and if you know in the class of somebody that needs something, please let us know. We cannot help if we do not know about it. So that's the meal ministry. Let this thing keep on going. Even if you see it a couple of times, just keep on sending it towards the back. All right, we are in Chapter 5 of the book of Genesis. Last week, I sat where you are as Stuart taught, and uh, my mind wandered, as it often does when Stuart teaches. And, and, oh, and, uh, and I fast-forwarded to chapter 5 to see what part of the, the Word of God I get to cover in Bible study class. And you'll look quickly at chapter 5 and see it's the, it's the genealogy of Seth. 
And as I was sitting there, I began to pray, Oh, Lord, what would you have me to say with chapter 5? I, I mean, there's just nothing there but the genealogy. And, uh, and so I left class going, Goodness gracious, I don't have any idea how you get a, a Bible study class out of this genealogy. And then from then to now, uh, as I began to go to the Lord and pray, I've got more stuff then I've got time. It's just that's the way the Lord works. And I pray that uh, some of the stuff will be meaningful to you. We're in chapter 5, but let's do a little bit of recap so we can kind of connect the dots to what is happening in chapter 5. In uh, in chapter 1, we'll remember it's the story of creation. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And it was what? It was good. It was good. And then we got to the apex of God's creation, the creation of man. He created man in the image of God, and it was it was very good. That's exactly right. Later on, it tells us that he created woman, and it was not good for man to be alone. And, uh, and when Adam saw Eve, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, 23, this is now is a Hebrew exclamation, which was... That's kind of subdued. It was really, wow, God. It was, it is very, very good. I mean, so, so we have in creation that which was marvelous and wonderful. But then we get over into chapter three and we have the fall in the Garden of Eden. Uh, there was temptation. There was separation. There was judgment. There was banishment from Eden. It's called the curse, the fall. And now in chapters four, five, and six, uh, we have the biblical history of the pre-flood world. There's a big word I never can say it right. Anti-development. Yeah, you, some of you know that word. I can't ever say that word. Anyway, it's the pre-flood world. And, uh, and, and God has given the command in chapter 1, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply. And that's what we have in, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, the fruit and the multiplication. And uh, so and so begot so and so. It's a snapshot of the fulfillment fulfillment of the command uh, from the fall to the flood to be fruitful and multiply. As I looked at that, I began to ponder some things, and and here's where I want to begin class today. It's just a little question. What well, what do you think is the greatest three letter word? in modern America today? What, what, what little three-letter word creates more um, response and evicts more emotion than any other three-letter word in our culture? And I'll make it easy for you. I'll give you a multiple choice, all right? Multiple choice. What three-letter garners the most response from the most Americans? Do you think it's the three-letter word God? Do you think it's the three-letter word sin, or do you think it's the three-letter word sex? God, sin, or sex? How many of you would say the one that evokes the most response in American culture today is that three-letter word God? I see a few hands. You're looking at it through your Christian eyes, and that's good. How many of you think the one that evokes the most response is sin? I see a half a dozen hands up. How many think the, the one that, re, that evokes the most response in American culture today is that three-letter three word sex? And there's the vast majority of hands. And, and, and if, if you ask some secular entity like Google which three-letter word is, is Googled more than any other word in the American vocabulary by ten times any other American word, it's this little three-letter word sex. That's where our preoccupation is, and that's where our mindset. I wish it was God. 
I, I wish it was God. I really do. And, uh, and, and certainly we got some God votes in here, but from a Christian perspective, I would expect you to give a God vote. But you remember I asked from an American perspective vantage point. I mean, it just seems to me that since Time Magazine in the 1960s proclaimed God was dead, you know, I'm like, oh, God. And, and I wish we would, we would put high on the totem pole sin. But, boy, you say the word sin today and you get a big collective yawn. But now sex, ah, there's some sizzle to sex. And, uh, and, and certainly it may not be a complete empirical data study, but certainly our preoccupation with it is real. It is by far the most Google word in the American vocabulary, our sexuality. God broaches the topic of our sexuality early in the book of the word of God. He says, the word of God, don't you imagine, would say a lot about it. He created us as sexual beings. In chapter 1, he said, be fruitful and multiply. In chapter 4, verse 1, the old King James says, and Adam knew Eve. That old King James obscures the fact a little bit. Some of the other translations make it just a lot more understandable. The New American Standard says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. The New International says, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. The Living Bible says, Then Adam had sexual intercourse with Eve, his wife. Are you all okay? I said the word, didn't I? But the Bible says the word. They had intimacy. The Hebrew word is yada, Y-A-D-A. It introduces the most intimate relationship between a man and a woman, a sexual bond, if you will. Chapter 4, verse 25, after the killing of Abel, it says, And Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son, Seth. And so in chapters 4 and 5, friends, we have a history of this original command, be fruitful and multiply. Chapter 4, you have the genealogy of Cain, the Cainites. Chapter 4, the genealogy of Seth, the Sethites. And, uh, and, and before we look specifically at these genealogies, I, I think there's some truths about this topic of our sexuality that it would really be well if we just acknowledge them. Uh, what truths? Well, is there a beauty in our sexuality? Yeah, there is. Is there a problem in our sexuality? Yeah, there can be. Is sex dirty or nasty or wrong? No, not in its right context, the God-ordained context. But I would also note that it's a topic that does demand some discretion immediately after the fall. Adam and Eve put a covering on. And so there is some discretion that is mandated when we, when we talk about this topic. Are our sexual drives real and strong? Well, of course they are. Obviously, I'll read chapters 4, 5, and 6 and see all the procreation going on. And that leads to an obvious question. Why did God give us our sexual drive? Why did he do that? Would you say procreation? Well, yeah, that would be number one for procreation. What else? Well, pleasure. He did it for pleasure too. 
Can you back that up with scripture, Brother Chuck? Yeah, I can. 1 Corinthians 7, 2. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill the marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent. He's talking about the the aspect of the pleasure of sex. You don't believe it can't be pleasurable. Go read carefully the book, The Song of Solomon. And if you need some exegesis of it, go get my tapes on the Song of Solomon. It's talking about the intimacy, the joy of intimacy between a husband and a wife. Hebrews 13.4 says that the wedding bed is undefiled. Folks, it's not talking there about procreation. It's talking about pleasure. Will the devil use that which God intends for life and for pleasure? Will the devil use it for death and for misery? Well, common sense, if you remember our our discussion of the serpent, the devil, in the garden, that's what he does. He counterfeits and he perverts. The Bible tells us in the New Testament there is pleasure in sin for a season. So as the devil perverts this, the pleasure could still be there shortly. But, oh, the destruction that comes when it's done, when this beautiful gift of God is used outside of the right context that God has given Do our sexual drives get out of bounds with God's parameters? Well, yeah, of course they do. You know that. I mean, I've been a pastor now for 30 years, and i got to tell you, I used to say every time I've counseled a couple and, and, and it's about divorce, it always, always was about infidelity. Oh, we might say we had irreconcilable differences, but the more I dealt with it, almost always there was a third party somewhere. I remember one young man, he came in and said, ah, we've just grown apart. I said, who's she seeing? He got mad. He wanted to punch me out. My wife is not seeing anybody. I said, okay, maybe you're the exception. Maybe the exception. I said, in my experience, it's just always a third party, and that's what causes a divorce. They got a divorce. Six months later, he came to see me. I apologize, Pastor. There was somebody. I was just too naive to see it. Folks, I'm just telling you, in my experience, there is almost always, always a third party. That's what drives us to divorce. Sexuality out of bounds. So much so, God commands out of the big ten commandments, you know. One of them deals with this topic, thou shalt not commit adultery. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on the topic of the beauty of our sexuality? Not too many. There's a couple out there, but over the years I've heard, I, I know less than a handful, just a couple. Why not? Well, it's a hard topic to talk about. It really is. It's an incredibly hard topic to talk about transparently, especially going anywhere beyond what I've already gone for today. Some of you are already uncomfortable with what I've said today. It's a hard topic to talk about. I, I normally do talk about it in wedding counseling. When I'm, when I'm talking to a young couple and I'm getting ready to uh, perform their, their vows to, to be the instrument used on their vows, I tell them, hey, look, um, this is a tough topic to talk about, but you need to get this right, and there are some books that help. And, and so, look, when it comes to our sexuality, I thought I knew everything there was to know. I was a fraternity boy. That ought to speak volumes to some of you. Fraternity boys live to chase skirts. I don't know how else to say it. That's what they do. 
And I, and I thought I knew everything there was to know about the opposite sex. And after I got married and after I started going to, to marriage enrichment seminar, seminars, I learned that I knew very little about the topic. I knew only what I learned in the locker room. I didn't know how to be a husband to my wife, especially in this area. And I learned that there are some good books that deal with this topic transparently. Here's an old one. The Act of Marriage, The Beauty of Our Sexual Love by Tim and Beverly LaHaye. I started giving this book to young couples that that, uh, I was marrying, saying, you know, look, I know you think you know a lot, but read this book. You'll be able to love your wife better. A a more recent book that came out from that first one was uh, Ed Wheat's book, Intended for Pleasure. Now, some of you are saying, Brother Chuck, why are you even talking about this? Maybe you need to give it to your grandkids, all right? I don't know. You make up your mind, but but we all know people that, that, that are out of bounds in this area, and these books are designed to help young people understand the beauty of our sexuality, but within the context of how God has shaped us. A more recent book by Dr. Kevin Lehman is Sheet Music. Now, if you look carefully at this book, you'll see four feet sticking out from underneath the sheets, okay? Sheet Music. And uh, these are these are good books for young people who, by and large, have bought into the system of our society and their sexuality by all the demographics and studies is way out of bounds from the parameters God has given. Be fruitful and multiply. But we seem to have wrecked that commandment. Now, some of you might ask, well, Brother Chuck, if if you say it's beautiful within its right context, why are you Christians so much against sex education in school? That's the question I've heard on a couple of occasions when I was a school board trustee for Clear Creek School District. I heard that question quite a bit. You know, why are you against it in schools? That's a fair question. Let me answer that question. What if we taught... Uh, driver's ed education in our schools the way we teach sex education in our schools. If you think about the way we teach sex education and if you think about the way we teach driver's education, you'll understand why I'm against teaching sex education in schools because we don't teach it the way we teach driver's education. But for just, just for an imagination for just a second, think if we taught driver's education the way we teach Sex education, here's how driver's education would be taught. Welcome to driver's education 101. I would like to go over some ways for safe driving. While a majority of the drivers prefer to drive on the right side of the road, some of you may choose to drive on the left side of the road. This is a moral choice you get to make. And only you can decide what is right. Not your parents or your friends. If you decide to drive on the left side of the road, use protection. Make sure you buckle up. Make sure you have seat belts. Now, a lot of cultures find it preferable to drive on the left side. Of the road. If you choose to drive on the right side of the road, you must be tolerant of those who drive on the left side of the road. They're only embracing their alternative lifestyle in driving. Do you see how, how silly that would be? The same goes for red lights and stop signs. Some would tell you that you should terminate your acceleration through the intersection. You must make that choice. You see, if 
if we taught sex education the way we taught driver's education, we would put parameters on what's right and what's wrong. But we don't. We, treat, we, we teach sex education with an amoral viewpoint. Totally amoral. And because of that, kids come away from there ready to experiment. This is the problem. Common sense would dictate when you teach driver's ed, you tell people what's right and what's wrong and what the laws are. And God has given us his laws, parameters, for our sexuality. It's just that our culture doesn't want them. They want to do what's right in the eyes of man. The history of that's given to us in this pre-flood environment. We have in chapter 4 the, the Canaanites, if you will. The sins of the family were many. Polygamy, murder, boasting, pride. It's a very sad commentary on the depravity of man. And at the end of the chapter, chapter 4, God introduces us the substitute to the murdered Abel. I think chapter 4, starting verse 25, ought to be the start of chapter 5. And Adam had relations with his wife again. And she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for God killed him. Cain killed Abel. God now has given a substitute for Abel. His name is Seth. And Seth means substitute or appointed one. The text tells us the Seth was the one who God substituted, took the place of murdered Abel. When my wife teaches today, she's no longer a regular teacher, but she will substitute teach. She will stand in for one who is absent. That's what she does. That's what a substitute is. And Abel uh, has now a substitute in Seth from which the seed of God would pass, the seed that would crush the head of the serpent's seed, Genesis 3.15, a foreshadowing of the Messiah to come. First things first, though, it's probable, possible and I think probable, that Adam and Eve had several children between Cain and Seth. That's, that statement might startle some of you if you read the Bible, but I think it answers a lot of problems and questions. We have Cain, and we have now Seth. Logic would say Seth is number three, but the Bible doesn't say that explicitly. It doesn't say that, and I'm going to to tell you that I think that there were several children between Cain and Seth, and I'll give you three reasons why I think that, all right? The Bible does not explicitly say he was number three. It just gives us his name as the substitute and then gives us the genealogy. So why do I believe, and why do I think it even makes a difference, that there are children between Cain and Seth? Three reasons. Number one, Stuart told us last week that, that in Genesis 4 it was all true but not comprehensive truth. I mean, in other words, what we were told was explicitly true, but we're not told everything about life and living in that day. It's not a history book. It's a book of the nature of God dealing with man. And it's not intended to give us every detail about life and living. It's just intended to give us an insight into what God was doing. 
And so Stuart said, and I amended in my heart, that everything that we were told was true, but we weren't told everything that was or is. I think that's true about this chronology of, uh, of uh, the children. Stuart did say, if you'll recall, oh, the age-old question about where did Cain get his wife. Do you remember that one? And what did Stuart say? He married one of the daughters of Adam and Eve. Where did that daughter come from? I think if you live to be 130 years, Adam had Seth when he was 130 years old. Okay? He lived to be 900 and some odd years old. Is it plausible that he had more children between Cain and Seth in that 130-year time frame? Certainly possible. Certainly very, very possible. So what reasons? Well, number one, Stuart said, we, we, we don't have a history book. We have a book about the nature of God. And also we get into, into a, a, a second reason. You'll see in, in chapter 4, verse 17, it talks about when Cain was exiled, he went and built a city. A city. Why do you build a city? Don't you think a city implies people? I mean, if you just say it's just Cain and just Adam and just Eve, why do you need a city? I'm just going to suggest to you that plausibility is that there were people around. And that in that 130-year time frame, hang on, Tom, you can come back to you, okay? In that 130-year time frame, that there's plausibility that there could have been people involved. Okay, hang on, I'll come back to you in just a second, Tom. And, and so, and so, um, Adam lived to be 930 years old. He had Seth when he was about 130 years old. We're told in chapter 5, verse 4, that Adam had other sons and daughters. The Bible does not give us a chronology or the genealogy of the other sons and daughters. They're not there. Uh, we may imply or assume that Seth was third, but the Bible doesn't explicitly say that. And so, indeed, there could have been many sons and daughters between Cain and Seth. And it was those who grew to be children and populated the city. Just one addendum, then I'll go to you, Brother Tom. One addendum. Henry Morris says it like this, commentary. It says, it is possible that Adam and Eve did have other children before Seth. But he was the one whom God revealed would be the true substitute for Abel. The son whose seed would inherit the promise. The possibility would make the previous story about Cain's exile and about his wife and about his city a bit more understandable in terms of the chronology involved. And that's the point I'm, I'm trying to make. It just makes it understandable. That's my point. This is a book about God. And as you read it, not everything in it is in perfect chronological order. It doesn't have to be. When we got to chapter 2 and we read about the creation of man in more detail, some would say, aha, there's proof. you got two creations. No, chapter 2 was just an elaboration on chapter 1. It doesn't have to be in perfect chronological order. Tom, did you have a, we're okay? All right. So I'm just surmising that uh, out of all of these children, some of them were born before Seth. He didn't have to be number 3. Verse 26, and to Seth, to him also, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. They had called upon him already in their tithes and offerings. You remember Cain and Abel? They gave. One gave a good offering. One didn't. That's, that's an act of worship. So in a sense, they had 
But from that time to now, certainly with all the Cainites, there's no record of calling upon Lord. But through the seed of Seth, and we'll see a godly seed to a degree, uh, we now see people again calling upon the name of the Lord. By the way, before I go into chapter 5, just one last thought. You know about this be fruitful and multiply and all these people and some of them I think came before Seth and some of them after Seth. Have you ever thought about just how big the world got to be in terms of population right up into the fall? How many people actually populate? Now, when we read carefully, we'll see that these human beings live to extraordinary old age, and that causes a lot of problems with a lot of people, not with me. But uh, um, they live to be 800 and 900 years old, very commonplace. Um, we, we remember we studied how there was a different environment at that time with the canopy over the earth and perhaps there was something there. Perhaps it was because Adam and Eve were created as perfect human beings and they didn't have the genetic malfunctions that you and I had over the, I'm just saying nobody contradicted it in the Bible, but today it's very popular to contradict they could have lived that long. I don't have a problem with that. And the testimony is consistent through all of these uh, pre-flood saints. They lived to ripe old ages, 890, 100 years old. Many of them had children up into the 600 year frame. Can you have a lot of children if you live that long? Our country's only how old? 250, 260, 270. Hey, that's nothing compared to how long these people live. I'm just suggesting to you that if you live to be 800, 900 years, you can have a lot of kids. And so some mathematicians have done the math. Okay, I found this pretty fascinating as to how many people could have populated planet Earth right up into the flood. And they did the math on a very, very conservative scale. They did it with all these patriarchs just having six kids. Oh, well, wait a second. I know some families have 10 and 12 now. But we're talking over a 900-year period, just six kids. And this theologian, did, this mathematician did the numbers of how many people would be on planet Earth at the time of the flood. I found that kind of fascinating. By the way, how many of you know on, on planet Earth today? Somebody know the number? Okay, say it louder, Tom. Okay, I asked the question, and Tom said seven what? Yes, right. I remember about 20 years ago they were saying six billion. But more recently I've heard on a number of occasions the number seven billion on planet Earth uh, uh, today. Okay? Wow, that's a lot of people, don't you think? So I'm reading this commentary, which is this commentary, Morris commentary, is about is about uh, 15 years old. So it's been around. And, and, and so he's doing the math as to how many people could on planet Earth prior to the flood. Do you want to take a guess as what the number was? Seven billion. Seven billion is the number. Page 144, Henry Morris's commentary says, if you do the math, just with six kids, seven billion people on planet Earth. And I'm going, oh, my goodness. That's the number we're at today. I just found that kind of fascinating for what it's worth. Seven billion on planet Earth. I'm sorry? Chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day that they were created. And Adam had lived 130 years and became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to the image and the name, and named him Seth. Although the authority of God 
continued to be recognized among the Sethites, they were still members of a fallen race, no less than the Canaanites. In, in, in chapter 1, we, we recall in chapter 2 that God created man in the likeness of God. But here, Seth is created in the likeness of Adam. It's worth thinking about. We talked at length about what it meant to be created in the image of God. That God made us unique amongst all creation. We're triune beings. We have a body, a soul, and a spirit. We had the capacity to fellowship with God richly. We had intellects like nothing in the, in the other orders of creation. Um, at the fall, part of the curse of the fall was death, spiritual death instantaneously. Physical death guaranteed. You read about all these so-and-sos begetting so-and-so, and ultimately in every one of them it's going to say, and he died. Adam created in the image of God. Seth created in the image of Adam. And you and I are just like Seth, according to the word of God. What exactly does that mean? Well, the New Testament elaborates and gives us the answer. Listen to Paul's writing in Romans chapter 5 dealing with this topic. I'm going to read it to you out of the, out of the paraphrase Bible called the message. It will bring it to life. You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma that we're in. This is Romans chapter 5 verse 12. You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma that we're in. First sin, then death. And no one exempt from either sin or death. The sin disturbed relations with God in everything and in everyone. But to the extent of the disturbance, it was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God still had to experience this termination of life, this separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who will get us out of it. So Paul said, because of Adam's transgressions, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so all of us are just like that Seth. Guy. So chapter 5 is a reference to the sons of Seth, whom you and I are like. You continue to read in the New Testament and you'll understand a little bit about not just the first Adam, but the second Adam as well. Here's a couple of reference points. First Corinthians 15, 47. The first man is from the earth. The second man is from heaven. Actually, it says the first man is from earth, earthly. The second is from heaven. Verse 49, 1 Corinthians 15, And just as we have been born in the image of the earthly, that's Adam, that's the image of Seth. And just as we have been born in the image of the earthly, we shall also become, be born in the image of the heavenly. Oh, that's good news. 
That's a blessed hope. In what way? 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 22. But Christ indeed has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death, for since death came through a man, who's the man? Adam. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Oh, that's that spirit being being made alive. In what way? Through Christ, the second Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Don't you see it, folk? You and I have the capacity to be made back right like the original Adam in the image of God through the second Adam, the Son of God, who defeated death, hell, and the grave so that we might have life abundant and life eternal. We are born just like the first Adam, just like Seth. In the image of Seth, our spirit has been quenched because of the fall. But we have the capacity, the capacity to get back in right relationship with God through the second Adam, the only begotten Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is good news. This is the Christian testimony. This, this, is the, this is the statement of the Christian faith. In Christ we live. Man, by the way, I'm going to contend again with you that man is a very, very special creation. Unlike all of the rest of the created world, much to the consternation of the evolutionist. Patty Stockman, the congressman's wife who comes to our class, sent me this email this week. I found it pretty pretty fascinating. And it's the email about a brilliant man on planet Earth named Sir John Eccles. Sir John Eccles. He's been knighted. He's Sir John Eccles. Uh, when he was 17, he became a medical student, and he began asking questions about the nature of man. What What is thought and what is the meaning of life? And 50 years later, after he became one of the world's greatest experts on the human brain, uh, Sir John Eccles has come out of the proverbial closet about his studies on this topic. Now, who is this guy? He, he's, he's a neurophysiologist, whatever that is. He's a smart guy who uh, who, who studies the human brain and, and the way the nervous system works, Okay. And, and so he, he was real quiet for a great number of years, but finally he became, he's a Nobel Prize winner. This is a smart guy. He won a Nobel Prize. And, uh, and finally he was so comfortable in his skin, he came out of the closet and spoke about what he has seen from a scientific vantage point. And this is what, this is not an evangelical fundamentalist just ranting and raving. This is a smart guy who finally was bold enough to speak to, to the rest of the scientists. And this is what he said. He wrote that naturalism, that's, that's the natural evolution of man. He wrote that naturalism fails to account for our experienced uniqueness. And for this reason, I am constrained to attribute the uniqueness of the self or the soul to a supernatural spiritual creation. The fact requires, in his words, divine creation. He goes on and says, no other explanation is tenable. Neither the genetic uniqueness with its fantastically impossible lottery, 
nor the environmental differentiations, which do not determine one's uniqueness, but merely modified it. This conclusion is of inestimable theological significance, he states. It strongly reinforces our belief in a miraculous origin, a divine creation. There is recognition not only of the transcendent God, the creator of the cosmos, but also of a loving God to whom we owe our being. He went on and he concluded when talking about Darwinian evolution, he said, it does not account for the highest levels of consciousness in Homo sapiens. He said, I think that the promissory materialism is still a principal leaf of the scientists, but it is promissory that everything will be explained, even intimate forms of human experience in terms of nerve endings. This is simply a religious belief, a superstition based on no evidence worth considering at all. He said, when you look at the intricacy of the brain and the nerve endings and you, you talk about it just happened naturally, he said, it's an impossibility. It is absolutely impossible. In fact, he said it's a religion of the scientist that has absolutely no basis of fact. That's what he said. I'm trying to put in, in human language for you. He's, he said it's, it's, it's make-believe. It's, what did Tinkerbell use? Pixie dust. It's what it is. It's scientific jargon that has no basis of belief or rational foundation at all. He said, each of us is a unique conscious being, a unique creation. He concluded that this is the only view consistent with all the evidence. So this unique being called man, by the way, we don't have the genealogies of any of the elephants or the we got it a man because man's unique. Created in the image of God. Fallen, now created in the image of Adam. We're given Seth's genealogy in this chapter, verses 4 through 21. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. The wages of sin is what? Yeah. And Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. And Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. And Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. And Enosh lived 800 years and 15 years after he became the father of Kenan. And he had other sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. And Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalel. And Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalel and he had other sons and daughters. And so all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. And Mahalel lived 65 years and he became the father of Jared. Then Mahalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared and he had other sons and daughters. And so all the days of Mahalel were 895 years and he died. And Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. And then Jared lived 800 years after and became the father of Enoch and he had other sons and daughters. And so all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch, verse 22, walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah and he had other sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. That's fascinating. But you ought, to, you ought to focus on that for just a second. 
You say, and, and God took him. What does that mean? Well, we're, we're given the what does it mean exactly in Hebrews chapter 11. Enoch's name is, is written in that hall of fame of faith, the great saints of the past. Enoch's in there. You go check me out in, in the Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. It tells us about Enoch, and it tells us about what it means when it says God took him. It says, by faith, Enoch was translated so that he should not see death and was not found because God translated him. Whoa! That happened to two people in the Bible, Enoch and Elijah. It happened to Elijah in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. It says that, that Enoch walked with God. His walk was so profound, there was something about it that ultimately he didn't live to be 900 and some odd years old. At the age of 300 and something, God translated him home. He didn't die in the flesh. Two people in the Bible, Elijah and Enoch. Pretty fascinating. Is it a foreshadowing of what's going to happen to a generation when Christ returns with the trump of God? Could be. You go read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, and we're told that there's a whole generation that will not see death but will be translated to go be with, be with the Lord. This is a foreshadowing. He walked with God. In what way did he walk with God? I don't know that I know. I don't think it was exactly like Adam walked with God. You know, it says that Adam walked in the garden. But that's, that was prior to the fall. After the fall, he was expelled. So in what way did he walk with the God? Was it how you and I walk? Do you know that you and I can walk and talk with the Lord? We even sing about it. How many of you know the song in the garden? And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the, yeah, as we tarry there, none other. That song, yeah, no. I don't know if it's the same type of walk with God that Enoch had. I don't know. I know that you and I can have a capacity to have fellowship with God where he actually does his spirit ministers, his spirit bears witness with our spirit. Enoch, curious about Enoch. We're only given this one verse, but he was a prophet. He's a prophet. You go to the to the book of Jude, New Testament book of Jude, and in verse 14 and 15, we're told of one of his prophecies, and we can deduce by that other prophecies. And what we're told about his one prophecy in the book of Jude is mind-boggling. Here it is, Jude uh, 1, verse 14. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, that's exactly where we are, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, Adam prophesied about them. Here's the prophecy. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all of the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What's that a reference to about the Lord coming with his 10,000 angels? That's a reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that. Enoch, pre-flood, 
prophesied about the coming of the Lord. Not the first coming as a baby in the manger, about his second coming with the angels of glory. Can I get a wow from anybody? That's a wow. And so Enoch, pre-flood, pointed people to the Messiah. Pretty amazing, folk. So much so that God said, you just come on. You don't have to see a physical death. You, you come on home. And Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Oldest Methuselah. And Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. And now he called his name Noah, saying, This one shall give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. I'm sorry? I'm sorry, say it again. Different Lamech. A different one. Yeah. Good, 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 good insight. Just like there's a lot of Johns today, good Johns and bad Johns. Okay. Is there a hand up? I want to make a couple of closing insights. That was my point earlier. That's the point I made earlier. Yes. Maybe you have some insight in this. I've got the NIV Bible, and in the footnotes it mentions uh, the 969 years uh, that it's a figure concerning the lifespan of literal. Then Methuselah died in the year of the flood, exactly 969 years. Um, Tom. Let me make a couple of closing statements. A couple of insights for you, gang. Three, three insights. Number one, God commands to be fruitful and multiplied or being carried out in this text. Number two, God's curse was also in effect. Eventually, after several, eventually they died. And number three, and perhaps most important, is God is preserving and recording the divinely ordained promised seed. You've got the genealogy here from Adam... Seth, all the way to Noah. You, you go to Luke chapter 3, verse 23, and it not only reiterates all of these names, but it brings it right up to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That promised seed that would crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3, 15. A prophecy that when you, when you read it, it doesn't quite make sense until you look at it from retrospect. On this, time, this side of the timeline, looking back at Genesis, you see that all the way back in the book of Genesis, God was prophesying a coming Messiah who would defeat the evil one. So much so that uh, uh, many of you may not know, uh, when you hear the battle hymn of the Republic, that prophecy is in that song. Uh, many of you don't know the story of Julia Ward Howe. Uh, 
she uh, was a Boston girl living during the start of the Civil War. And, uh, and that was a poem originally. It was a poem that the Lord gave to her in a prayer. And let me just read it in her words. I went to bed that night as usual and slept according to my want, quite soundly, and I woke in the gray of the morning light, and as I lay for the dawn, the lines of the the desired point began to twine themselves in my mind. Having thought out all the stanzas, I said to myself, I must get up and write these verses down, lest I fall asleep again and forget them. So with a sudden effort, I sprang up out of bed, found the dimness of an old stump and a pen, which I remembered to have used the day before, and I scrawled these verses almost without looking at the paper. That happens to me. I'll be in the early morning hours and thinking about something in class or something I need to say, and if I don't get up and write it down, I lose it. And uh, and that's what happened to her as the Lord gave her the battle hymn of the Republic. You know it. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Second stanza, I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. His day is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Third stanza, I have read the fiery gospel writ in burnished rows of steel. As ye deal with my contemners, so with you my grace shall deal. Let the hero born of woman crush the serpent with his heel, since God is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. She's referencing Genesis 3.15, the eventual triumph of the Son of God over the over Satan in that song. She was such a great patriot that, that a generation later, Teddy Roosevelt, in his book, Fear God and Take Your Own Part, he was so profoundly influenced by Julia Ward's influence that he dedicated his book to her. Saying of her, this book is dedicated to the memory of Julia Ward Howe because in vital matters fundamentally affecting the life of the republic, she was as good a citizen of the republic as Washington or Lincoln. That's a wow. She stood for Christ and she did her best in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now, I'm a southern guy. You could say I'm a southern boy. I've read a lot about the Civil War. I really have. And the South... The, the South frames the Civil War in terms of state rights. It's about state rights. Now, the English didn't understand that. An English newspaper came over there and was trying to understand the war, and, and the Englishmen, they wrote, state rats? What are state rats? Is that a big rat in the, in the, in the South? And it's the way Southerners talk, state rats. The South framed the war in terms of state rights. And they had a valid argument that the rights of the nation were being usurped, but the right that they really wanted to evoke was unbelievably wrong. The right that they wanted to evoke was the right to subjugate human beings of a different color. And they were dead wrong. Dead wrong. So Julia Ward Howe was moved by the Spirit to write this song. And you know what? She was right. And don't you understand that from the beginning of time, there's a cultural civil war taking place that would subjugate 
human beings. When the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. You want to know about life and liberty? Meet the Lamb of God who restores you to becoming a son of God. The second Adam. When you meet the second Adam, you get right with God anew. You're no longer just a son of the first Adam. Now for you and me that know the second Adam, you have life abundant and life eternal. And you can see things in the world in which you live through spiritual eyes and understand that we are in a ongoing, eternal, spiritual civil war. A civil war that still tries to subjugate human beings to death and separation. You and I need to be like Julia Ward Howe. So much so that others would see our good works and glorify our God. As ambassadors of Christ, that's our calling. Let's pray. Father, we looked at a genealogy. I pray it's a whole lot more than a genealogy that we would see the nature of man fallen and wayward. Ah, but for the second Adam, the Savior Son that sets us free to be all that you want us to be in life and living, to continue to fight the good fight over and against a, a, a fallen world which uh, lives in a, in a demonstrative way against your word, will, and way. May we be ambassadors that you could be proud of, I pray in Jesus' name. And the people said, love you, brothers and sisters. God bless you, and we'll pick it up next week.